As the choir was singing, I was struck that if I could memorize that song, I would have the Gospel of John down. So powerful. Um, words from Scripture set to music in a way that grabs your heart. Thank you, choir, for preaching to us. And I don't know, I feel like I just want to put it on a, on a loop and just keep listening to it over and over again. But we are in John chapter 8, verses 21 to 30. The verses we looked at last Sunday record Jesus' declaration that He is the light of the world. And if you're like me, I've heard, I've heard that for decades, and it's clear on the face of it what it means in terms of what light is. But we really do miss just how stunning this claim is if we divorce it from its Old Testament roots. It is the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, during which the ceremony of the lighting of the lamps to commemorate the bright Shekinah glory of God that led Israel in the wilderness years. There's, that lighting happened uh, either on the first day or even on every day, but that was part of the festival. You add to that Isaiah's messianic prophecies, and you realize that when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, He is declaring that He is God with us, the Shekinah glory, the dwelling place glory of God, and, and the promised Messiah, the Savior King, not just of Israel, but of all nations, the entire world. And then he makes this glorious promise, whoever believes in me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That means you, that means me, every generation, every nation, we need this Savior King. And he says, trust me, and I'll rescue you. But the darkness of unbelief is strong, and it hates the light. So the Pharisees, and by the way, just the fact that the Pharisees here are voicing unbelief tells you that unbelief often rules within the most religious of people, the people with the Bibles on their laps. The Pharisees responded to Jesus' words with a condescending, dismissive spirit they pushed back with sarcastic wordplay and technicalities. Their reaction is the poisonous overflow of deep hatred for Jesus and determined unbelief in order to protect their own power and their own system. So Jesus shifts from His declaration to a sober warning of the tragic cost of unbelief. In verse 21 of John 8, He says these words, so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So they said to them, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. 
I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The tragic cost of unbelief, verses 21 to 24, is first, inescapable doom. Inescapable doom. It is ultimately what cuts anyone off from God because Jesus has made a way back. Unbelief brings inescapable doom. In verses 25 to 27, it also brings on spiritual blindness, even in this life. And then in 28 to 30, we're reminded of our limited opportunity. Unbelief keeps procrastinating and forgets that there is limited opportunity to actually trust in Jesus. Well, first, let's talk about this inescapable doom. Jesus spends some bit of time on this. We read in verse 21, so He said to them again, I am, doing, I am going away, and you will seek Me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jew says, will He kill Himself? Since He says, where I am going, you cannot come. So they're still playing games. He says, I'm going away. Jesus is reiterating what He's already said in John 7.33 earlier. He said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to Him who sent me. In six months, Jesus will be crucified and buried. Three days later, He will rise from the dead and continue teaching His disciples. Forty days after His resurrection, He will ascend into heaven and return to God the Father who sent him. I am going away. You will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Over and over, they've hardened their hearts. The day is coming when their opportunity will be gone. They will seek the Lord, but it will be too late. The Scriptures warn about this. In Isaiah 55, seek the Lord, seek Yahweh while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. The problem is the sin that separates us from God, and yet God makes this offer to seek Him, and He will pardon. Proverbs talks about this deadly procrastination. In Proverbs 1, wisdom says, Because I have called, and you refuse to listen, and have stretched out my hand, and no one has heeded, because you've ignored all my counsel with none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when in distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord 
would have none of my counsel, despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. He says, you will die in your sin, and then you will die in your sins. That spells the the very end of hope, for death removes all further opportunity to repent and believe. Sin left unatoned for, to be paid for by the sinner. This, This is the destiny for every human being on the planet. We are sinners by birth and by choice. We sin because it comes naturally. We pile up our sins. Something has to be done about that sin, and if it is not, we die in our sins. Well, what next? Hebrews 9.27, justice is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Paul explains in Romans 2, he that is God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. No wonder the psalmist then declares in Psalm 32, blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, no twistedness. Iniquity is right down deep into who we are and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, he's talking about a person who's been transformed by God because he's come to God in faith for forgiveness and for cleansing, and God has has given him life. At the end of the age, we read in Revelation 20 what will happen. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done, things that they'd forgotten they even did things they've forgotten that they said, things that they've forgotten they sought and thought and desired. And verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If we're judged by what the books say in terms of our record, we are all judged guilty. It is only those in the book of life that are granted freedom. And so, he says again in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe what I'm telling you about who I am, that I'm God in the flesh, the Shekinah glory of God, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of Man sent from heaven, you will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He said a same, very similar thing in John 7, 34, you will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So, we ask the question, well, why can't they come where he's going? 
Well, they can't come where he's going because they refuse to trust him as the Savior that he is. He will explain to his disciples in John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, you and I can't make it to the Father apart from Jesus. You reject Jesus, you're rejecting the only way. They can't come because they have rejected the only one who can get them there. Truth is, not one of us, not one of us can get ourselves home to the heavenly city where God's throne is. I mean, if somebody were to come to you and say, okay, can you give me the directions to heaven? Would you just like guide me there? You couldn't walk them there. Oh, it's just down the hall to the left. Oh, you just, you take this road, you take this interstate. You couldn't tell them that. And when we're on our deathbed, breathing our last, we can't do anything. We, you know, everything is shutting down. How are you going to get yourself anywhere? If God doesn't get you there, you're not going. We don't deserve to be in the heavenly city where God's throne is. We don't deserve to be there on our own merits. God is sinless and holy. And even on our best days, we are not. Our sin is deep in us. Not just our deeds and words, but our thoughts and desires, our very nature inherited from Adam. And Adam all die. It's only in Christ that all are made alive. We can't conquer the power of sin. We can't break the power of the grave. Only on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness can we enter heaven. Only on account of His satisfaction of our sin penalty on the cross can our record be cleared before God. Only by His resurrection power over death can we be freed from the prison of death to enjoy life eternal. Otherwise, otherwise death wins. There's, there's no way we break through. We cannot go where Christ is gone unless He gets us there. These rejectors of Jesus cannot come where Jesus is going, not without trusting Him to save them. The destiny of those who trust in Jesus, however, is exactly the opposite. Listen to the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Earlier on that evening, this is the night of his betrayal. In John 14, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I am going and you can come because I'm going to bring you to myself. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's talking about going to the cross. He's talking about going to the grave. He's talking about rising from the grave. He's talking about returning to heaven. He says, I am going. I am am going away from you now. This thing that you dread, my death, okay? I, I am doing this to make a way for you prepare a place for you. This is the only basis on which anybody gets to go where Christ alone deserves to live. It's, it's His home city. He is 
the Son of Man that comes from heaven to earth, and He rescues those who trust in Him. Jesus went to the cross and the grave, then rose again to open the way for those who trust Him so that they live forever in His rightful home, the heavenly city. But those who reject Him cannot go there. He says in verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. This is why he had said to Nicodemus earlier, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There has to be this transformation of who you actually are. You have to be born with life from above, born of the Spirit before you can enter into this place that is God's heavenly city. Without a new birth that gives us life from God through the Holy Spirit, we remain earthbound, chained to this world and organized rebellion against God. This world, despite all its present pomp and power, is doomed to pass away. You can have all kinds of flash. You can have all kinds of marketing. You can all have all kinds of chest pounding. But, but this world is in settled opposition to God. And that's why John will say in his epistle, first epistle, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all this in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all this unsatisfied desire driving people, trying to be somebody, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But, in contrast, whoever does the will of God abides forever. He would say to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. You realize the Pharisees are representatives of the world. He says, you're of the world. You're religious. You have your Bibles, but you don't believe. You don't love God or you'd love me. You don't believe Moses or you would believe me. You're part of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you, he says to his disciples, as its own. But because you're not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we live in a world that's in settled opposition to God. It's a world of unbelief. Those that have believed, been born again, they are not of this world anymore. They belong to the heavenly city, and that's why they can go there. Beware of trying to accommodate the world's dogma in opposition to God's truth. We live in a day when it's become fashionable to do this, even among churches that claim to be preaching the gospel. They are caving to unbelief and darkness. And as such, it is the path of inevitable doom. So some questions to ask ourselves. What are some common beliefs that reject that trusting in Jesus is the only way to heaven? What are common beliefs that reject that? And what does Jesus teach here about the certain destiny of everyone who refuses to trust in Him as the only Savior sent by God? And that leads to a further question. What friends of yours do you need to warn 
about the inescapable doom of unbelief. You know, it's not just one of those things where, hey, that works, for, that works for you, this works for me, different strokes for different folks. It really doesn't matter. No, it actually, it does matter because of who Jesus is. Because of who Jesus is, He is the only way. He is the only way that you and I can go where He is. He is the only way for us not to die in our sins and face the wrath of God. Verses 25 to 27, we learned another cost of unbelief, and that's spiritual blindness. You know, the inevitable doom is, is at the end. This is while you're still alive, here. So they said to him, who are you? It really, they're not really asking sincerely. It's kind of a mocking, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They continue in their sarcastic mockery of Jesus. And he says, who are you? Kind of like, who do you think you are kind of attitude. Jesus has already repeatedly and plainly told them who he is. His testimony is consistent, but there are none so blind as those who do not want to see. Jesus could say more about their judgment, but he's on a mission of mercy. He's declaring to the world the truth that God the Father has given him to share. This is why if you don't believe Jesus, you don't believe God. This is why if you don't receive what Jesus offers, then you don't want what God offers because God sent him with this truth. Their lack of understanding regarding Jesus' statement comes from having rejected his earlier statements. They've rejected the truth that Jesus is speaking from God the Father. So they're left in the dark as to what else he could mean. If you reject the truth, you're left with lies. If you reject the light, you're left in the dark and confusion rules. Jesus has declared to the world the message God the Father wanted delivered to a lost humanity. When you reject what Jesus taught, you reject the message God has sent. You've cut yourself off from the God of light and truth. You are left spiritually blind. And this happens in the present time, this curse of blindness. People who reject Jesus, when they hear the gospel, think that they will someday have a chance to change their mind. That, you know, it's just not for now. That maybe later. But there's no such guarantee. First off, you, you have no guarantee of even one more day of life, let alone the health of body and mind where you can even think clearly. But even if you're in good health mentally and physically, you can be trapped in this spiritual blindness. Some of the smartest people in the world, some of the, the most equipped, gifted people in the world are spiritually blind. They, they can't believe anymore because they're blind. Jesus addresses this in John 9. We'll come to it in a few weeks. Jesus said, this is after healing the man physically born blind, and that man ended up trusting in Jesus. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. You know, the, the blind man, the physically blind man knew his need. 
knew that he needed light to see, and so he was open. He was open to who Jesus is. Jesus healed his physical blindness, and, and that, that led to his being healed from his spiritual blindness. Some of the Pharisees near him, and those who see may become blind, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. The people who congratulate themselves that they are so smart, and because of that, they do not believe, are struck with a blindness that will doom them. Thankfully, Jesus gives light to the blind. And once they realize they're blind, there is hope for them. So how is it that people exposed to the light of Christ can remain blind? You actually may be one of those people. How come you're still blind to receiving Jesus for who He is? Why would that be? Why is spiritual blindness such a terrible state to be in? These are questions you probably want to mull over more this afternoon or a little hard to do on the spot. And what, what does it take for a spiritually blind person to gain his or her sight? I want you to think about that for a moment. If you're blind, like what did it take for the physically blind man to regain his sight? What did it take? I mean, did he just like go to the, the, the neighborhood Walgreens and get some kind of tonic to put on his eyes? I mean, how, how do people recover their sight? How did he recover his sight? Christ did it for him. It's a God thing. Recovery from blindness is a God thing. Christ gives light to see. So he, who needs you, if this is a God thing, if those that are blind need an intervention from God Himself to actually see, who needs you to be praying that Christ will heal them from their spiritual blindness? What are their names? And are you praying for that kind of miracle in their life? Number three, we see in this passage that there is limited opportunity. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus is the mediator between God and man, and He underscores it once again. And, and when He goes to the cross, that, that act of being mediator will become all the more clear. Jesus is referring to His coming crucifixion. He talks about lifting up the Son of Man. He did this with Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up 
that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave, He gave up His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We stand condemned already. It is only as we believe in Christ, taking our place on the cross, that our condemnation is removed. When Jesus was crucified, there was a great darkness for three hours, a massive earthquake. The temple curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies was torn top to bottom. When he rose from the tomb, others came out of the graves as well. The Jewish leaders' rejection of Jesus sealed their judgment. While some of them repented and believed, the rest rushed toward destruction. They had missed their day of opportunity. Not long before his crucifixion, Jesus said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, and the Jews are dispersed into the nations. They did not regather until 1948. Their unbelief that led them to crucify their Messiah brought on them a curse. Romans 11, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you, Gentile believers, stand fast through faith. Therefore, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. But even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. And so in verse 30, we see a glimmer of hope. Not everyone listening to Jesus that day rejected what He was saying. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. And on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the crucifixion, thousands more would believe and millions have come since then. There will always be those who refuse, but there is a remnant who hear His voice and follow Him. They realize the urgency. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to believe before it's too late. There's limited opportunity. So how does God's inevitable judgment make our spiritual decisions urgent as well as important? And what does putting off trusting Christ till later reveal about our self-deception regarding our personal power to control our circumstances? And what are opportunities you have that you know will not last 
forever. There's limited time. There's limited time. If you're a believer, there's limited time to share this gospel. There's limited time to display it before a world lost in darkness. If you're not a believer, there's limited time. God says, now's the day of salvation. Now's the time to believe. Don't keep stiff-arming God. That's a battle you cannot win. May God grant belief to you like these that believed. There is great, great cost, tragic cost to unbelief. There's inescapable doom. There's spiritual blindness. But there's limited opportunity. Believe while you still have the chance. Let's pray. God, you know the state of our hearts. You know the reasons for our faith or for our unbelief. Lord, I pray that, that this day you might shed light in the hearts of those that are blinded by the God of this world, lest they see the glory of Jesus. Help them receive Jesus' words as truth. Free them from continuing to resist him as if he is a liar, as if he talks about fairy tales and fantasy. May they be honest with who they are. May they be honest about who Jesus is and what he has done. May they find it compelling and attractive to be rescued from the sin they know they're guilty of and from the wrath they know they deserve. And Lord, if we have believed, may we be your witnesses to shed the gospel light into the darkness of this world before it's too late for those we love. For it's in Christ's name we pray.